17 this morning. Exodus 17. Refreshment where you least expect it. So if you remember, we've been studying the book of Exodus and we've seen God birth a nation out of slavery from a king who did not want to let them go. And as he has been forced by the hand of God to let these people go, they've entered into a desert land and they have needs. They've left, they've left the municipalities, they've left uh, the place where they lived, they've taken all their stuff with them. And as they have left and they enter crossing the Red Sea miraculously, having been delivered from their enemies, they wrote a little worship song that they sang and they celebrated. And now after they're done worshiping, they get on the other side and they start to complain. Now, you've never done this. Even though God's done some pretty amazing things in your lives, you've never complained. But I have. So I can relate to this passage. They've complained because they don't have anything to drink. They've complained because they didn't have anything to eat. They've, be, they've complained because it's hard. And yet, uh, last chapter, chapter 16, God provided for them food. He used something very practical. He, he said, I'm going to send you quail in the evening. And I'm going to send you bread in the morning. And all you have to do is go out of your houses and gather it up, make it into bread, bake it, and it will be food for you. I'm going to provide food miraculously in the dew of the morning. And as God has done this, they've been traveling. Everywhere they've gone, God's provided them more food. So in Acts, excuse me, Acts, Exodus chapter 17, it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord. So he's leading them each place they go. He's giving them direction. And they camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink, which is interesting because the word Rephidim means refreshment. So they arrive in the place of refreshment. You might call it the food court. And there's no food. There's no refreshment. There's no water. So they're over a month into this journey, and everywhere they go, they're thirsty because they're in the desert. They're in a desolate place. And so they complain to the Lord because now they've arrived in a place called refreshment, and there are no refreshments. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? He's always saying, why are you complaining to me? I'm not the one that provided you food. I'm not the one that split the sea. I'm not the one that actually made it so Pharaoh would force you out. It's been the Lord all along. And yet Moses is the hands and feet of the Lord for the children of Israel. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? By the way, when you complain about what you do or don't have, you're actually complaining against the Lord. You're not complaining against your boss. You're not complaining against uh, your, you know, whoever goes and shops. Mom, how come we don't have food in the fridge? You're, not compl- you're complaining against God. God provides everything we need. We just always don't think that we want what we need. We always want something else, right? What would be better? Something else. I think it was Rockefeller who had made millions in the time of his life and somebody interviewed him from the press and they said, if you could do one thing before you die, how much money would be enough? And he said, one more million. We're never content with what we have. We always want something else. And so here we have the Israelites complaining against Moses. He says, why do you complain against me? You are tempting the Lord. You're testing him. And you as parents have said that to your kids before. Don't test me because you know as well as I do that when my kids test me, I'm going to fail. I'm going to mess up. I'm I'm not going to deal with it well. And so he says, you're tempting the Lord. And yet the Lord never fails a test. Praise the Lord for that, by the way. So verse three, the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt? To, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Is that why he brought them out? Well, obviously no. Verse four, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. 
They're so angry at Moses, they're ready to chuck rocks at him and kill him, assassinate him. And so what's interesting about this is if, if you look at this passage, they're in a place of refreshment. There are no refreshments. The Israelites are complaining, much like we would. Does it sound unreasonable for, him, for them to say to Moses, what'd you do, bring us out here to kill us? But when we get tormented by thirst, or when we suffer need, and we really think that we need the thing that we're crying about, isn't it likely for us to say things that don't make sense? I mean, have you ever, have you ever gone for more than four hours without eating, and at the end of the four hours going, I'm starving to death? Are you really? Because I got reserves. I don't know about you. I can make it more than four hours, but we say things like that, and it becomes so common that we just rattle them off. And, and that's what this is. We might say, I'm starving to death, and we're not really. For them, they over and over again, if you read Exodus, keep saying, do you bring us out here to kill us? It just became common to say it. When you become a complainer, complaints become natural. They just, whatever we get squeezed slightly, it comes out. But they were tormented with thirst. Let's have a little grace on them. They were actually in a desert. They were actually probably so parched that they needed to drink before they died. So Moses cries out to God and he says, Lord, they're complaining uh, and they're about to kill me because of what you're doing which is, by the way, not false. They're about to stone me. I represent you. They're so thirsty, they're going to kill me. And what's interesting is that Moses is a type of Jesus Christ. Because if you remember when Jesus showed up on the scene, Jesus shows up and he starts proclaiming, I'm God. And what did the religious leaders do? According to John chapter 8, verse 59, they all picked up stones to stone Jesus because they believed he was a blasphemer. They believed that he was somebody that was claiming to be something that only God can be. So if anybody ever comes to you and says, hey, it's great that you follow Jesus, but he never claimed to be God. And I don't know why you worship him like he's God. No, they picked up stones, the religious leaders did, because he, compl- he, he was claiming to be God. That's why they wanted to kill him. And many times it says, from that point on, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Sadducees, groups that never got along, by the way, all worked together. Isn't that interesting? And they said, let's try to figure out a way to kill him. These are the the most holy guys in Israel at the time, in the eyes of the people. And their job, they they go, you know what? Let's, Let's take a break from what we normally do, and let's plan an assassination. Let's plan a murder. That sounds like a good use of our time. And so... Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, responding to his prayer, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with you, you struck the river, your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of Israel, the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? My clicker's not doing its deal. That's a very specific phrase. My clicker's not doing its deal. You guys know what I'm saying, right? So they come to this place. They're ready to stone Moses, but what we just read says that God's getting ready to stone them. And you might say, what? It didn't say that. They're getting ready to stone Moses. They're so mad they want to stone Moses. And God says, don't worry, I'll astonish them. I'm going to astonish them with what I'm getting ready to do. Come on. I worked hard on that. That was premeditated. Believe it or not, I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And it was. Come on. So he says, I'm going to astonish them. By the way, the word astonish actually means to put someone in awe. They were astonied is actually the word that's used in the King James. And so astonish means to cause someone to stop what they're doing and go, oh my, what just took place? 
And I don't know about you guys, but if I saw a man take a stick and hit a rock and water come forth, I would be astonished. I would stand still and go, what just happened? That's circus stuff. That's the stuff you want to see at the circus. It's just this amazing, miraculous thing. And before any of you think that what he did was he cracked a rock open and a little bit of a spring came out like we see in Missouri, that's not what happened here, folks. There was two to three million people saying, I'm thirsty. God didn't go, here's a trickle. What he did was he busted open a rock and he made a lake. And if you go to this location in the Middle East, there is still water pouring forth from this spot. And so this wasn't a trickle. This wasn't a water fountain with 30 thirsty kids. This was a fire hose in the middle of the city just pouring forth water because there's two million people and their livestock. And if you've ever seen livestock drink water, they need some water. And so God brings water from a rock in Horeb. We've established that. But the word Horeb, the name of this location, this area, actually means in the Hebrew, a dry or desolate desert place. So not only is God giving them enough water, but he's giving them water in a place that doesn't make sense to get water from. It didn't look like an oasis. This isn't a place with palm trees and and a little spot where it's like, okay, if we dig here, we'll find water. He cracked open a rock. And so it sounds familiar because Jesus was a fountain from which water poured forth that didn't make sense. And if you look in Isaiah chapter 53, a chapter that is well known to describe very clearly the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Before you go to the clear description of his crucifixion and his suffering, start in verse 1 with me where it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For Jesus, we know this from the New Testament explaining this to us, but in verse 2 it says, For he shall grow up before him, before God, as a tender plant. And then he goes on to describe he's going to be a root out of dry ground. So I don't know about you guys. I know just enough about growing plants that typically saplings or tender plants don't grow forth from dry soil. They grow forth from moist soil. Many times we build little plant nurseries for them because they're kind of sensitive to dryness. They're sensitive to lack of sunlight. It doesn't take much to kill them. And so Jesus, he shall show forth, he shall grow up before God as a tender plant, and he will be a root out of dry ground. So fast forward past the time that he was raised up to John in chapter 7. If I can get the right bookmark here. I tried to cheat and it's not working. John chapter 7, in verse 37, they had just uh, practiced a feast in Israel, and Jesus, practicing the feast along with them, at a very strategic time, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He says, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he who believes in me, who comes to take a drink, out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water. Was he talking about water? No, he was talking about his life-giving spirit. See, the water in the Old Testament is a picture of his life-giving spirit. And in Revelation, in chapter 22, not Revelations, but the supreme revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 22, which is the last chapter in the Bible, Verse 17, I'm going to start in 12. Jesus speaks to John and says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, 
the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside of the gates will be dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers, those who worship idols and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. He says, I am the root. Interesting, we just read that in Isaiah 53, the root out of dry ground and the offspring of David. So I'm the heir to the throne. I'm the descendant of King David himself. I am the bright and the morning star. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the one who's filled with the Holy Spirit, their testimony is, come. So if you've ever been those people that have been, man, why won't those Christians stop talking about Jesus and stop inviting me to church? Don't they know I got stuff to do? The Spirit inside the bride, their testimony is going to be, come, come with us. Not come be be with us, but come be one of us. And, and let him who hears, those who receive the gospel, let them say, come with us. And let him who thirsts, interesting, we're reading in Exodus, they're thirsty, right? Come and drink freely. Let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And Jesus even told his disciples, he says, freely you have received Now go and give what you got free for free, free of charge. God offers it to all mankind. And so there's this refreshment that comes from Jesus from an unlikely place, Jesus. And actually back there in Isaiah, you don't have to turn there. It says, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. And look at this. Jesus had no form or comeliness. In other words, he wasn't good looking. He wasn't Irish with a red beard and a chiseled face like the paintings. He, he looked like everybody else. He, he probably looked more like me. It doesn't make sense that a guy that looked like me would be a savior. He wouldn't be on the cover of a magazine. He probably was balding and had a big nose. He was Jewish, folks. I mean, that's not slander, that's reality. And so... It says there, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. The people of Israel did not desire to be in a desolate place. The people of Israel desired something to quench their thirst, and they did not expect it to be quenched by this Jewish man. They expected him to be a conquering ruler, a king, somebody carrying a sword, somebody who was going to shout and be taller than everybody, a, a conquering commander. Nope. As a matter of fact, he would take the guys that carried swords and he'd throw them away. He'd say, Peter, that's not for this time. When, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he got out his sword and chucked off the, the ear of the guy that was arresting him, he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not time now. And then he heals the guy's ear, and then he goes, okay, now you can arrest me. That's a savior? What in the world? That's confusing, right? And so, back to our text. So let's look at what's in a name. What does Moses call the place they're in right now? Remember, it's called Rephidim, which means refreshment. Refreshment. What Moses calls this place is Masa, which means tempted or testing, a place of temptation, a place of testing. That sounds terrible. I don't want to go to that place. Uh, Meribah, the place of contention or arguing, which makes me think after Jesus was baptized, where was he taken? He was taken to a place of temptation and testing. And there Satan comes and he argues with Jesus. If you're truly the son of God, turn this stone into bread. If you will worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. He's arguing with God. He's tempting God, right? So this place is called by Moses the place of temptation or testing. It's called Meribah, the place of contention or arguing by Moses because we tend to call things what we remember about them. And Moses doesn't remember anything but the bad. Why? Because that's where he experienced complaining. 
and their question of, is the Lord with us or not? But what does God call this place? It was named before they ever arrived there, Rephidim. And perhaps the people that named it that had no clue why they were naming it that. You ever see God do something in your kids' lives and it actually matches up to what their name means? Oftentimes, I, I, when I first started reading the Bible, I asked my pastor, I sent him a little email. I said, hey, it seems like all their names kind of tie into with what they ended up being. Do you think it was because their parents prayed it into being or because God supernaturally empowered them to name them that? Or do you think it's because they just, it was self-fulfilling prophecy where they were named this and then they tried to live up to it? And he said, I think it was all that. I think it's all of that. I think God's sovereign. I think he knows. And so he inspires parents to say stuff that they don't even get. And then later it's like, whoa, God knew. And, and so he calls this place refreshment because he had plans before the earth was created to refresh this people who were not a people when they would become a people because God's outside of time. But it seems like an impossible place to do it. And I would say to you, maybe you find yourself today and you're like, I want to be refreshed, but I'm in a desolate place. Well, before you receive refreshment, before any food or water can refresh you, you first have to suffer from being hungry or thirsty, don't you? I mean, I don't know about you guys. I said this last week, but I don't really appreciate water until I'm actually thirsty. The problem is many times I'm not that thirsty because I've been filling myself with a sugary drink. And yet, when I suffer hunger, and suffer is a real thing, right? To suffer hunger or to suffer thirst, God says, I'll take care of that need. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he said, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst. Now, to a people that were surrounded by the poor, they'd be like, I'm not blessed if I'm hungry or thirsty. But Jesus said, Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because that, I guarantee, I will fill that hunger. I will satisfy you. My righteousness will satisfy that need. And so, in in verse 7, it sounds like their response to this desolate place was the same response that people had to Jesus. Jesus shows up. He's not what they thought he would be. And they start asking him, are you the Messiah? To the people that he healed, they said, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that, that the prophecies have said will come and, and, and take away our... But they weren't looking for them to take away the sin. They were looking to be delivered from their circumstances. We're hungry. We're thirsty. I'm blind. I can't walk. All of these temporary things. And yet to prove that he was the one that came to take away their sin, he said, I'm going to take away these temporary ailments to show you that I have the power to deliver you from what really oppresses you, which is sin and death. And so they responded by saying, what do we call you? Are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus graciously, he didn't have to, he performed signs and miracles. And you know what they did with those signs and miracles after watching them? They argued with each other. I don't think he's the one. I think he's a blasphemer. They, they started to fight amongst each other rather than appreciating the living water that was in front of them. They tested the Lord. And then their main question was, is God here with us or not? Is God with us or not? Are you the Messiah or not? And in the meantime, who was sitting there with them? Emmanuel, God with us. And so, verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So, they're still in Rephidim. God's providing for their thirst. They're all drinking from the water. And who shows up? The Amalekites, one of their enemies from the past. And they start to battle against them. So they're all arguing with each other. They're all suffering thirst. And guess what? Now not only are they going to experience refreshment, but while they're getting refreshed, they're going to be attacked by their enemies. Moses responds and says, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. So Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And I want to stop there in verse 8 for a minute because Amalek arrives and they attack the people of Israel. Now the people of Israel were not rolling with tanks and they didn't have battering rams and swords, um, but they had enough to be able to fight. So if they won, it would be a sign that the Lord was with them. 
Is God with us or not? Uh, you're going to get a chance to find out. You're going to get the chance to battle, and you'll find out if God is with you or not. But I want to stop and look at this. Who are the Amalekites? They seem to come out of nowhere. Well, they are descendants of Esau. Now, who is Esau's brother? Jacob. Jacob and Esau. And when they were born, God said about them, there are two nations battling in your womb. And so when they are born, God says there's, there are going to be two nations. They're going to be divided. And God chooses Jacob, the younger, to be the, the one who carries on the promise of Abraham. So Esau, in rebellion, goes off and says, fine, if I'm not the chosen one, I'm going to go live like Motley Crue. Let's let her rip. And he goes and marries a uh, Canaanite woman who it was forbidden for them to marry them. He said, I'm going to go marry somebody my parents are not okay with. So he marries a Canaanite woman in rebellion against God, and they have a son. His name is Eliphaz. And Eliphaz then sires a son through his concubine. So he has a wife. He has, so a wife would be someone that you're married to, you're committed to. And then a concubine would be somebody that you're just basically married to so you can experience pleasure through them, basically like you own them. And so through this concubine, Timnah, who is a Horite princess near Mount Seir, which is the land that becomes the land of Edom, which is the land that's owned by Esau, stick with me, um, he has a son, and uh, his name is Amalek. And Amalek then, through his descendants comes this nation called the Amalekites. And they are a work of the flesh. They only do what feels good, tastes good. They, they're in control. They worship idols that really serve them. They don't worship God. And so because of that, they become enemies with the people of God himself. And so Jacob and Esau are still having a sibling rivalry. Except now, instead of being Jacob and Esau as individuals, it's Jacob's descendants versus Esau's descendants, Edom. So as they are battling, what we see is what in the New Testament, we have this idea of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And if you know this, if you're a Christian, you have two natures now. God hasn't taken away your flesh. You still got to battle against it every day. So you have the choice to Respond by obeying the Spirit, or you can obey the flesh. And those two things, they war against each other until we put off this earthly tent. The Spirit wins when we fight with spiritual uh, warfare. And so um, what I want to point out is that the Galatians chapter 5 says, if you want to know if you're living in the Spirit or the flesh, Galatians chapter 5 tells us the works of the flesh the fruit of living by the flesh are evident, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh can be seen, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Quite the list, right? And some of those things we'd go, well, I don't do that, but why is that listed next to murder, you know? And, and so he says, these are the works of the flesh. And he says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whoa, ouch. And so the question is, how do I avoid this? Because my flesh is still very strong. So if you look at Romans chapter 8, which is the very next passage we'll read here, if I can find it, I hid it from myself. You know, there it is. Thank you, Lord. But Romans, so the bad news is that nobody will inherit the kingdom that practices those things. That, that's a habitual lifestyle, somebody that continues in those sins. I'm not talking about trips up one time. I'm talking about it becomes who you are. That's what you do. But Romans chapter 8 says, 
In Christ, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but instead walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. That's what we just sang about. Free, free. Forever we're free. But, he says, it's, it's made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he judged it on the cross. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but now we walk according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity, the carnal mind will be at war with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh. I like that he throws that in there. If you're experiencing this battle, if you are in Christ and you got conviction about your sin, he says this positional truth about you. You are not in the flesh. You're not. So you don't have to battle against the flesh with fleshly means. You can battle trusting that the Spirit's going to battle for you. He says, for you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, then he's not Christ's. So if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul later goes on to say, I reckon my own flesh to be dead. And now my flesh, if there's any life in it, is because the spirit enables it. And so that's the desire of those who walk in the flesh. Excuse me, the spirit. So what's in a godly response to an attack? They're being attacked by the fleshly kingdom of Amalek. So Moses responds and says to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So their battle plan is, you build an army and go fight physically. I'm going to take a couple people and I'm going to fight the spiritual battle on this hill. Verse 10, So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So the battle was up to how they were fighting, and that they were fighting. But it seems to me that the outcome was actually based upon what was going on outside of the battle from a different perspective. Isn't that crazy? We often think, it's all about what I do. And then what the Lord wants us to see is, yes, that's true. But it's also about what God's doing. And so should I spend a lot of time praying or a lot of time fighting? And I would say to you, yes, fight and pray. And so verse 12 says, but Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and they put it under him. And he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So Moses calls Joshua. Now, by the way, this is the first time his name is mentioned in Scripture. Joshua literally means God is salvation. So before he says, I'm going to go pray, he says, God is salvation. Go fight the battle. Even though he says Joshua, Yeshua, that's where we get Jehovah, Shua, which means God is salvation. And so he says, choose men to lead into battle against Amalek. Go fight. Go choose able-bodied men. 
So then Moses goes to work and he calls out to God from above the battle. But he doesn't do it alone. Notice he goes with Aaron and he goes with her. <clears throat> Are these two ways to fight or one? Well, I already answered that because I was ahead of myself. Go fight, but the, lad- the, the battle is fought and won by the Lord. So Paul touches on this idea when he says that the earthly battle and the spiritual battle are to be fought. And in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 10, in verse 3, Paul writes this. And he again picks up on this flesh battle. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're still in our temporary bodies. We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly, but they are mighty. They're they're not physical battle weapons, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Notice that those those weapons are not mighty, but they are mighty in God. We don't have the ability to fight these battles. And if you remember in the book of Daniel... There was a time where uh, Daniel was overwhelmed by seeing what was going on in Babylon. And so he decided to take several weeks to pray and fast. And so during this time of fasting and prayer, the Lord eventually comes to him weeks into this thing. And he reveals himself and he reveals all that's getting ready to take place. He even reveals to him things that will take place centuries later. And having seen the vision, Daniel falls down weak and he's overwhelmed and exhausted and he wants to receive more but he's just he's just done he's undone really and so you'd say well why would he fight by fasting if he's god's going to give him a vision he needs to be strong by the time he gets the vision but what we find is that at the end of fasting and getting the vision and then basically almost passing out because of the weight of what he's just seen in the vision the lord touches him and he's completely revived and strengthened. And then he's able to walk in the thing that he's called to do based on what he's seen. And so in the same way, uh, we don't battle with our strength in flesh. And if we do, and if you've done this, and you've not obeyed the Spirit, but you've instead decided to try to battle in your own strength, you know as well as I do, you can only battle for so long, and then you're done. And then you fail and you fight all the wrong ways and you create more of a mess than if you just trusted the Lord to do the fighting. And so he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're a mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And so victory is assured. And it's interesting to see that the victory is assured. We see in verse 11, victory is assured through prayer. He's got his arms up. He's lifting himself up to the Lord saying, we need you, Lord. And a lot of people would say, well, he's not doing anything. He's just wasting his voice. He's wasting his strength. And then he gets worn out. But what I know about uh, battling with prayer is that James chapter 5, verse 16 says that it says that uh, the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So it actually gets more done than our own sweat does. And then also victory is assured through laboring together. What was the key to their victory? They fought Moses prayed, and the men who went with Moses lifted up his arms because we saw very clearly that when his arms started to droop, so did their victory. It started to be taken from them. So they would lift up his arms simply, and they set him on a pedestal. They put him on a stone. When he hit rock bottom, they lifted his arms. And so um, verse 13 uh, has already said that they, they found victory says Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So there was a very real battle going on. So the Lord declares war on Amalek, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. God puts a, a mark. 
He says, I, I'm, I'm going to take care of Amalek, and I'm never going to cease fighting against them. I'm going to shut down this Amalekite generation. And he says, I'm going to fight them from generation to generation. But notice he doesn't say, I'm gonna, you, I, you guys are going to do it. He says, I will. I will bl- blot out Amalek. I will put to death the deeds of the flesh. He swears to continue war with Amalek from generation to generation. And what's interesting is in the history of Israel, he finishes the battle with Amalek in the person of Haman. How many of you ever read the story of Esther? In the time of Esther, there was a wicked man. Actually, the Bible calls him Wicked Haman. And Wicked Haman not only wants to put to death the Jews, he wants to put to death all the Jews in his master's kingdom. And so he gets the king to sign a decree. But what's interesting is by the end of it, he builds a gallows to kill this man that he utterly hates. And by God's sovereignty, God turns the tables on him. And instead of Haman killing Mordecai, thank you, Mordecai actually gets to kill Haman on the pole. And so he judges Haman. That's the Lord fulfilling his promise. Generations later, he's still putting to death the Amalekites and protecting his people. God keeps his promises from generation to generation to generation. And so Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. And, and notice that this battle wasn't just against the Amalekites, it was against any fleshly kingdom. Because Jesus put to death the, the sins of the flesh, as we just read in Romans chapter 8, on the cross in Christ. That he punished all disobedience and all who come to Jesus can receive the forgiveness and the righteousness he offers, recognizing that your unrighteousness, that your fleshly deeds. Maybe you, you heard me reading that list in Galatians. You're like, gosh, I would never raise my hand, but that's me. Good grief. How can I enter into the kingdom? Well, glad you asked. Jesus Christ took the punishment for all the unrighteousness works. And he's in the exchange going to give you his righteousness so that you no longer are practicing those things, but now you've been forgiven and set free and you get to enter that kingdom. All those who put to death the deeds of the flesh, Jesus put to death those deeds on the cross for you and for me. He fulfilled it in Jesus Christ on the cross. And so verse 16, for he said, verse 15, Moses built an altar called its name, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisi or Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. To say the Lord is my banner is to say, I will go fight with him and I will be known as his. For those of you that want to put a big banner on your house, maybe it's got a particular president's name. Or maybe it's a red, white, and blue. Or maybe it's the stars and the crossbars. Whatever it might be, you're flying that banner saying, I I identify under this name. Well, what is our banner? Who is our banner? The Lord, he is our banner. That's, by the way, why we're called Christians. Early on, the first thing they were called was the way. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, well, I want to be... I want to be on the way. And so in the same way, we're called Christian, which means little Christ. I am his. I am like him. I'm his offspring. I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Jesus, not Mike. You know, and so he's the captain of our salvation. And so we fly under his banner. He chose men. Now notice this. Joshua was told, choose men to battle with. What did Jesus do when he came here? According to the will of the Father, he chose men to go to battle with him, right? Twelve. And when when the heat was on, (laughs) who fought the battle? It was Jesus, because what happened to the disciples? As soon as he was arrested and then he was charged, they all took off. They were like, retreat, retreat. But Jesus didn't. Jesus stayed the course, and he didn't really need those guys, by the way, because the Lord, he is our salvation. He alone saved us. He is the one who intercedes from on high. Think about it. So we talked about Joshua. 
Now we're talking about Moses. Moses went on high to intercede over the battle. Mark chapter 16, verse 19, that says that Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He, he is the stone, and he's sitting down. He's not off of his stone going, I wonder how it's going to last, how it's going to end. No, he's interceding at the right hand of the Father, and he's sitting down. He's not on the edge of his seat going, I wonder how it's going to play out. He's saying, Father, please take care of this need. He's praying for us night and he's praying for us day. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's not, his, his arms aren't tired that he's got to lower them like Moses. What's interesting is Jesus, while in his fleshly body on the earth, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to do what? To pray, to fight the battle before he went and fought the physical battle. And he took men with him. And what did they do while he was praying? They fell asleep. They did not hold up his arms because Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus didn't need them to hold up his arms. He took them there to see what he was doing, to know how to fight battles. He took his disciples to intercede and they fell asleep. But did the battle get won still? Absolutely, because Jesus fought the battle both physically and spiritually. Therefore, the victory that we inherit is because of him alone. No one else, nothing else will do. So therefore, we choose to carry his name and we are to follow his example. So turn one more place to Hebrews in chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. See, the Old Testament is there to surround us with people who have gone before us without as much as we've been given. They fought battles not knowing that Joshua meant Jesus and that there would ultimately be a sin savior. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore we also, this is us, church, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured, despising the shame, and now he has what? He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility, from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, but Jesus did. And so now we can. And so how does this all apply to us? Because not all of this does relate to all of us, right? But maybe you feel like the Israelites. You've come to a place that's supposed to be called refreshment. I'm in Jesus. Shouldn't I be refreshed? And so I I drew this little graphic up, and hopefully you can relate. The Israelites were hungry. The Israelites became thirsty and dry. The Israelites experienced testing. They were tested. They experienced temptation. They started to argue with each other. They started to have contentions amongst one another. By the way, this isn't the place that God said he would refresh them. And things seem to get worse and worse and worse. And maybe like me, your family has these things where in the midst of all the battles that are going on spiritually and temptations and work and and then they're, they're scheduling conflicts, which seems like more and more pressure drop down upon you. And maybe there's attacks from others, people that are saying things about you, uh, people that have, you've said things about them, and so you, you know you deserve it, and, and you're experiencing some, some persecution. And maybe in your family, there's fighting going on because of circumstances or, or work or whatever. And it seems like, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. God's brought me to this place where he promises to refresh me. Where's he at? How can I get refreshed while my life is so full of pressure and requirements and stuff to do and things that I'm required to do? Where's the refreshment at? 
And I want to tell you that the good news is it's right in the middle. Refreshing is right in the middle of all that. It's Jesus Christ. He is the rock from whom all things flow that we need. He is the water of refreshing. And if you're going to wait till all these other things on the outside go away, you will never drink from the well. You won't. If you're going to wait till the right circumstances where life isn't busy, you'll never fellowship with other believers and experience the refreshing God has for you here on earth. Now, don't get me wrong. I want all those things to go away too. But until they do, that doesn't mean we can't take a drink from the well. He told his disciples, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He didn't say, come to me, all you who have vacation time. He didn't say, come to me now that you've had your nappy. He didn't say, come to me because it's whatever you're waiting for before you go, I'll trust the Lord when I have more time. He says, come to me while you are weary, while you are heavy laden, and while you are those things, I'm going to give you rest for your soul. I am your rest. I will fight your battles. You will have to keep fighting until we get to heaven. And so, Father, thank you for refreshment when we least expected it. I know for me, I don't know for everyone here, that you showed up in my life at a time that I did not expect you to, nor did I, I I knew full and well I didn't deserve it. And you saved me anyway. And when I was complaining, you gave me food and water. You gave me true refreshment in the Holy Spirit. And so I pray for these here. I don't know what they're experiencing, but I know that you do. And I know that before they knew it was coming, you were already interceding for them. You were already praying. And so, Father, open their eyes. Open our eyes to see that in the midst of what life brings today, this week, this coming month, the holiday season, whatever season we're in, Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that we have to keep coming back to the pool of water that has been offered freely from the rock of Jesus Christ. Lord, we need you more than we've ever needed you, whether we realize it or not. Forgive us for trying to satiate and satisfy ourselves in so many other things. Help us to come back to you and say, Lord, would you please fill me again with your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.